others that I'm on a tour that was a little bit unexpected. I was meeting to come on a visit for other reasons to America in October. And a little over a month ago, a close dear friend of mine, Ari Fold, was murdered. And he was supposed to be on tour in November. Was he supposed to? Did he come here ever? Yeah. Okay. So I offered that I would take over some of his uh, talks that he was supposed to be on. And I don't didn't really realize what that was getting into when, uh, when that happened. Because uh, amongst other places it brought me was uh, Durham, North Carolina, where it's the only city in the United States which has officially adopted BDS as part of their uh, city uh, policy. And uh, I had a room full of, uh, of evangelical pastors, um, the head of the SWAT team, and the, um, the county sheriff was there. Um, the, the police are not allowed to have anything to do with Israel, so a lot of the police were afraid to come to this, uh, this talk because they were afraid to get fired. Uh, tomorrow I'm going on to Irvine, California, which is the the hub for the Muslim Brotherhood on campus. So like I said, I didn't realize uh, what I was getting into, but uh, Ari has very big shoes to fill. I came to Atlanta today, I, I was driving in from North Carolina, I had two talks yesterday, one in, uh, in Durham and the other one in East Carolina University. And uh, then came through South Carolina, Atlanta. Uh, I stopped at one of the uh, the rest stops on the way in, what they call the Welcome Centers of Georgia, very welcoming. And I asked, what are the what's the main site? What do people come to to Atlanta, to Georgia, to see? And they told me about Stone Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was a little bit strange because. Uh, but I went to see it anyway. I was there this afternoon, early this morning. Uh, you know, in, in Israel, we have uh, either cardboard or, or drywall mountains, but here they make them out of stone. So I was really curious to see what a stone mountain was like. It was an interesting experience. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Ari. I'm going to talk a little bit about Israel, one of Ari's if not Ari's main passion. And then I'm going to speak about where I live, which is a very uh, peculiar place uh, in Israel. And, uh, and then I'm going to open up the floor for questions if anybody has any. There is a story of a old Russian rabbi who found himself praying at the border of Russia in a closed military zone. And he's fervently in prayer, has much kavana, and doesn't realize what's going on around him. And as he's deep in, in his davening, a burly Russian officer comes over to him. He picks him up and he shakes him and he says, who are you and what are you doing here? The rabbi, startled, turns to this uh, Russian officer and says to him, how much do you get paid for this job? 
And the officer says, officer says well, if you ask, the, the czar pays me 20 rubles a month to do this job. So the rabbi said back to the officer, I'll pay you 10 times that amount if every single day you pick me up, you shake me, just as you just did, and you ask me those two questions. Who are you, and what are you doing here? As we go through life, it's quite rare to find somebody who really has the answers to these two questions. My friend Ari Hashem was one of those people. He knew very, very clearly who he was and what he was doing here. And he spent every day of his life towards that goal. His passions were Am Yisrael, Torah Yisrael, and Eretz Yisrael. And he spent, like I said, every day of his life until his final day working on those three goals. Like I said, yesterday I spoke in, uh, in a university, the students there, and we were talking about the fact that today the youth are basically brainwashed to believe that there is no absolute truth in the world. There is a moral relativism that allows for every narrative to be correct. You can have the Israelis that say one thing, the Palestinians that say another thing. Some people call it the West Bank, some people call it Judea and Samaria. Everybody has their terms, their narratives, and everybody has to be correct. <coughs> Ari understood very clearly that this was not the case, that we have an absolute truth that's Torah be Sinai. And I think what was even more special was that he wasn't embarrassed, he wasn't ashamed to speak about it. Many of us probably have the same beliefs. We all understand that there is there is one truth. But often, especially I think here in the United States, where we live in a society that is politically correct. It's not acceptable to offend someone or to disagree with them. And this has become very, very difficult for kids that are in college because they are completely surrounded by people that are pounding into their heads these other, these other narratives, whether it be other narratives regarding Israel or whether it has to do with Judaism. And, uh, and they really don't have this, the, the necessary tools to fight back. And that's something that Ari was very passionate about. He had an incredible following, not only in real life, but virtually. People followed him around the globe. Thousands of people watched him every day as he unabashedly spoke the truth and battled against those that believed otherwise. Today, by the way, is uh, the yard site, or was the yard site, of Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach. And he said a very interesting thing on this week's parasha. We read in the 
this coming week's parasha in Vayera. Yukach no me'at mayim v'rachatsu ragleichem v'yishanu ha'asaitz. Sorry. Uh, he says that, in, we all know the story, that the two Malachim come to visit Avram Avinu, and Avram Avinu asks them to first wash their feet before they come into the house. So Shlomo says, what is this all about? What, what is this washing of feet? So Rashi, obviously everybody knows the Rashi, that explains over there that he thought they were Ishmaeli, they were idol worshippers, and therefore, they had to wash the uh, avodazar off their feet, the dust off their feet, before they came into the house. But he says that a very interesting thing. He says that the word ragleichem, the word regel, has a double meaning. For those that speak a little bit of Hebrew, regel is very similar to the word hargel, to be accustomed to. And what Avram Avinu was telling them is that you have to leave behind what you're accustomed to doing, right? Now, Ramavina was well known to go against to, to go against the uh, the stream and go against everything that the world was saying at the time, and preached monotheism in a, in a in a pagan world. And he said that the idea is that you have to leave your hargel, and you have to you have to be willing to change yourself. And only when you're willing to change yourself can you be tachasaitz. Can you, and, and how do you do that through Mayim, through the Torah, is the way that you get Tachazahitz. This is something, like I said, that people have to start changing the way that they're thinking. People have to be willing to go out and welcome. People have to go out and they have to be willing to stand up for what they believe in. And they have to be willing to say that there is an absolute truth and not be ashamed of it. Ari and I often spoke about the tragedy of we often it's referred to as diaspora jewelry. I don't like to use that term diaspora jewelry. Diaspora jewelry implies that there's it's okay for Jews to be in Israel and there's this other group of Jews that it's okay to be in somewhere else. I prefer to use the word exile, because then the worst exile is the one that you don't realize you're in. But uh, it's important, and, and Ari was always very passionate about saying where our home is. Unfortunately, I, I hate to break it to you, but it's not in Atlanta. Um, if you spoke to somebody a mere 70 years ago, and you told them that soon there will be a kibbutz Goliath, an ingathering of the exiles with millions of Jews back in the land, back in Eretz Israel, that there would be a, a bustling city, the capital city, Yerushalayim, with almost a million people in it, they would look at you like you're insane. Today we're living with these Nebuahs, these prophecies unfolding before our eyes, and most people are completely unaware of it in Israel, let alone in Atlanta. That's what the Gra says, the Vilna Gon says, the Yakir Yosef as Echo, and Lodi Kiruhu, 
that Yosef recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Please come in. He explains that Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. He says that in the times of the Geula, the Geula, the redemption, is going to be happening all around us, and people are going to be oblivious to it. We are living in, a, in an unprecedented age where, for the first time in history, there are more Jews in the land of Israel than there were during the first temple times, the first place of Mikdash. There's more, more Jews in Israel than during, for sure, than during the second time, back place of Mikdash. There's more Torah learning than ever before in history. For the first time in 2,000 years, we have dozens of families of Kohanim living in and around the old city with big day kahuna in their closets ready to do the avodah in the base of Mikdash. We have dozens of kohanim, including in the community where I live, that learn kodshim in order to instruct them. We have rebuilt all the kalim of the base of Mikdash, with the exception of the Aron Habris, which was put into hiding 30 years before the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. And for those that need to know where that's at, we know where that's at. We've refounded Tcheles, where the process of rebreeding the Paraduma. And this list goes on and on and on. We are literally light years ahead of where we were just a few years ago. But like I said, like the Gros says, most people are oblivious to what's going on around them. For those that are attuned, it's quite miraculous to be able to see this unfolding of Jewish history, of our destiny happening in the land of Israel. Where I live, we have between uh, five and 10 seminary girls every Shabbos pass. And I often speak to them about what I've coined as the MMM. The MMM is the magical Mashiach moment. I tell them that inevitably, if you grew up in America and you went to a yeshiva or a Beis Yaakov, you were taught this concept that there's going to be a magical Mashiach moment where Mashiach is going to appear from the sky the base of Mikdash is going to fall down from Shemayim, and everybody's going to be transported miraculously on the wings of the eagles, Tiasamesim, all these things are going to happen in this magical moment. And I believe that that is totally inconsistent with the way that Chazal has seen any previous or future Geulahs is happening. We understand that it's Kima Kima, it's a slow process, it's not something that happens in a magical moment. And I tell them that this has serious ramifications for those that are living abroad. If you imagine if you teach your children, not the MMM, that there's this magical moment, but the Geula is actually happening right now, and you could be part of it. So any intelligent, sincere child would ask the question if the Geula is happening in Eretz Israel today, and we can be part of it, so what are we doing in Atlanta? What are we doing in Borough Park? What are we doing in Lakewood? What are we doing, et cetera? doesn't really make that much sense that we would be here if we could be part of this process. But this is a process that was foreseen over 200 years ago by, by the Vilna Gon and his students, and the Baal Shem Tov and his students, um, when they were sent to Erez Israel. The Gerard refers to this period as Mashiach ben Yosef. He explains that Mashiach is much more 
that does the person, Mashiach, is a process. It's a process that we are living in today. It's a process, again, that began over 200 years ago, and we believe we're at the end of this process today. There's a rabbi in the old city named uh, Rav Nachman Kahana. His brother's birthday was also today. And he explains that there is a filtration process that is going on in the world today amongst the Jews of the world. In his words, Hashem is choosing his team. Who is going to be on his team in the end of days? And he gives a marshal, a beautiful marshal, to explain this. He says, if imagine if you have a mixture of sawdust and metal scraps mixed together. How do you separate these, this, this mixture? So the first method of, of separating it, of filtering this, would be to take a very strong fan and blowing it, blow it at the mixture, and the light sawdust would blow away, and the metal scraps, the heavier metal scraps, would stay behind. The second method is to take a match and to light the mixture, and the flammable sawdust will burn away, and the metal scraps will be left behind. And then the third method is that you can take a strong magnet and, and hang it over the top of this mixture, and the metal scraps will be attracted to the magnet, and the sawdust will be left behind. So he says this is an analogy of what we're witnessing today, that the Jewish people are being filtered through these three methods. There is a mass, a mass assimilation going on, especially here in the United States, where in many places you have a 70 to 90 percent assimilation into meritrate, and that is what he called, what he compares to the, the, the strong fan. This, this process of assimilation. The second method of the fire, he explains, is persecution. What we're witnessing today in France. England and across Europe where anti-Semitism is again rearing its ugly head. There's a there's persecution is alive again of, of, against the Jewish people. And the third method he explains is the magnet. And the magnet is Eretz Israel. So he says that he hopes that the Jews will be attracted to this third method to Eretz Israel and choose that over the first two filtration processes. I live in a uh, community, a very special community in Israel. Uh, it's on the Mount of Olives on Har Zaysim. Many people, even in Israel, are surprised to hear that because they think it's a big cemetery, which indeed it is. Um, it's actually the, one of the largest and the oldest Jewish cemetery in the world. It dates back 3,000 years. It was used consistently for those 3,000 years with the exception of 19 years between 1948 to 1967, where it was under illegal Jordanian occupation. Not only did they not allow Jews to be buried there, but they destroyed over 45,000 farm there. We're in the process of restoring those today. I'm not gonna go into this, a whole, a whole speech in itself about, about Hazaysen, but suffice it to say that it's a treasure trove of Jewish history. You have the, the last three Nevi'im, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are buried there. You have uh, famous rabbis, Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize laureates, I'll just tell you a quick story since I'm mentioning it. 
whenever someone asks me how I speak English, you know, if you walk around the streets in Israel and speak English, they're like, wow, you speak, you speak good, good English. Where did you get that from? Where are you from? That's my, one of my favorite questions. Where are you from? So I always tell them the story of someone who's buried on top of Karazesim. His name is Shai Agnon. Shai Agnon was a Nobel Prize laureate in literature. And when he went to collect his Nobel Prize from the king of Sweden, he immediately said, the bracha one makes when you see a cake. And he translated it, and the king was duly impressed by this. During the dinner, the king comes over to Shai Agnon and says to them, where are you from? So without hesitation, he answered that I was born in a small town in Poland. But he said that was only in a dream. For in reality, I'm from Jerusalem, and I was exiled by Titus 2,000 years ago. We're all from there, but we got lost in different places in the exile. Baruch Hashem, we're coming home. By the way, I spoke last week at a dinner in New York uh, that was for the York site of Rachel Imeno. And I explained, you know, everybody's familiar with the famous pasuk that talks about Kolber Amanishma, that Rachel Imeno Mevakal Baneha, she's crying for her children and she refuses to be consoled. And why is she crying for her children? Because they're not, because they're not where they're supposed to be. They're not at home. They're not back in Eretz Israel. But we have a prophecy. We have a guarantee that that those that choose it will be come back. And b'shavu bonamli gulam, they will come back to Eretz Israel. And we hope to witness it soon in our days. But uh, that's a decision we have to make. The community. The community that I live in is one of five Jewish communities currently on Harzaisen. Um, 20 years ago, well, 30 years ago, there were no Jews in that whole area. Today there are five Jewish, thriving Jewish communities. We live in the largest one called Ma'alai Zaytim. Uh, there are 120 families, about 1,000 Jews living on, in our community. The city just built us a mikvah to service a population of 50,000. If that gives you an idea of how quickly we're expanding. By the way, Rav Nachman says another few things. It's a lot of things. I've been talking with him for over three decades, so a lot of stories. He says that all men in Eretz Yisrael wear yarmulkes. He says there's three types of yarmulkes that are worn by men in Eretz Yisrael. You have the black yarmulke, you have the knitted yarmulke, and then you have the transparent yarmulke. <laughs> but he says they're all wearing yarmulkes. <laughs> and the two examples that I like to give of these uh, transparent yarmulke wearers. One is the current mayor of Jerusalem, at least for another week, um, near Barkat. He is in the process of building a cable car system which is going to go from the south of the city, from the, what's called the Begin Center, down into Ir David, the original city of Jerusalem, the city of David. It's going to go up to Harazesim, and then it's going to come down to the Kotel Plaza. It's going to facilitate bringing 4,000 people an hour to that area. The second person that I like to mention is Yisrael Katz. Yisrael Katz is the Minister of Transportation. As his name implies, he's a Kohen. And as such, he says he has a special relationship with the base of English. Everybody, I'm sure, has heard about the fast train that was built that goes from the airport to Jerusalem in 21 minutes. So he said he's going to extend that line all the way to the Kotel Plaza, and the last stop is going to be called the Kotel Harabayat stop. For those that are attuned to what's going on, it's very, very clear that this is being done 
in preparation for the Ola the Regel, for three times a year, Jews throughout the world are required to make a pilgrimage to, to Yerushalayim, to the base of Migdash. And we're not on donkeys anymore, so we have to have an infrastructure to facilitate that. And it's happening. It's happening right under our feet. It's being built for those that are attuned to what's going on. Anyways, back to my community. So when we came, we returned to Eretz Israel five years ago. We were in Pittsburgh. I was the Republican nominee for mayor of the city. Um, finished my master's, my PhD there. And um, we came back to Israel, and we planned on moving to Ramat Golan, to the Golan Heights. We rented the one house that was available in a nice town there called Hispin, and we got there with my wife and my six children and my lift, and my wife took one look at the house and said, it's a shambles, there's no way she could live there. And we moved out a week later, and we started looking for a place. We finally found a place in the south of Yerushalayim called Lofzion. Uh, the day that our short-term release was up and we were supposed to move into this property, the current tenants refused to move out of the apartment, and we were going to be homeless in, in a very short time. So we frantically started calling up our friends and saying, you have a place for us to live. And one of my friends said, well, there's a place available in Malay has a team. I said, what's that? They said, look. We went and we saw it. And people ask why I live in such a dangerous neighborhood. I always tell them, I don't know what you see when you open up your windows in the morning, but we have a beautiful view of Harabayas of the Temple Mount outside of our, our window. It's actually funny when we have seminary girls over, often comes time for Mincha and they ask which way is Mizra, which is telling you the wrong direction, but we try to educate them a little bit. Um, so we always say that the place chose us, we didn't choose it. We really had no intention of moving there. People ask sometimes, we get the question whether they're Kohanim living in our community. When we moved there, there were three families with the last name Cohen. We differentiated between them, calling them Cohen 8, 10, and 16. That's not their addresses, but the number of kids they have. <laughs> so just them alone, we had dozens of Kohanim. And um, I consider it to be the safest neighborhood in Yerushalayim. Uh, I call it a gated community. My oldest son called it a refugee camp as a matter of perspective. <laughs> but once you're in our gates, we have zero crime. We don't lock our doors. Kids walk around 24 hours unsupervised. It's very kibbutz-like. We moved into the community about five years ago and lost the keys to our front door. I think the second week we moved in, so we haven't locked our front door in five years. It's more than most people can say about where they live. Um, what apartment number was that? <laughs> if you come, you're welcome. You, you don't have to, you can just ask for wanderers. I don't think anybody does apartment numbers. But uh, it's, a, it's actually funny. I mean, it, it's funny and sad. Don't tell anybody. I said so because people get the welfare after us. But uh, like we have a WhatsApp group. And like in the middle of the night, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning, someone will say, did you see my two-year-old kid somewhere? <laughs> and people, the kids just walk around and go to other people's houses and stay. When people, the, one of the reasons we're able to host all these girls on Shabbos is because when people go away for Shabbos, they leave their apartments for other people to use. So Baruch Hashem, it, it's, a very, it's a very special place. We're uh, on, on Friday nights at Daven on top of the mountain. It's the best view of higher bias that you can get. It's a smaller Jewish community with nine Jewish families. It's called Beit HaFoshen. Um, we have a unique custom there for those that say Lechadodi on Friday nights. There's a custom to turn around to the back of the shul or to the doors of the shul by Bogu Shalom. Here we don't turn around. The Shekhinah is right in front of us. We don't turn our backs to the Shekhinah, so we stay standing forward. I think it's the only shul like that in the world. 
Shabbos morning, we walk into the Old City. We're about 10 minutes from our gates to the gates of the Old City. And uh, I dive in a shul called Menachem Sion, which is a uh, which is the first shul started by the Talmidei Grof before they built the Purva. Anyways, there's lots to talk about. But what I want to speak about, uh, the last part I want to speak about, and then I'll open it up for questions, <coughs> is that we are in the process now of building an incredible community center in our community, which is going to not just be for our community, but facilitate <coughs> Uh, the community center is going to be for all the Jewish communities in and around the old city, around the periphery. Uh, it includes Ir David and Kfrat Kemanim, for those that are familiar with the geography, Har Zaysim, Shimon Tzadik, um, parts of the Muslim Quarter. And this, uh, this community center is going to have an Ashkenazi shul, a Sephardi shul, a kolel, a library, a kindergarten, and a simcha hall. Right, all in this building. Um, we're approximately halfway down through with the project. Um, we've raised about two and a half of the five million dollars needed for the project. It's going to change the skyline of Yerushalayim. The Rambam, the Rambam says that there's a three-stage process of the Gula. The three stages are, the first thing he says is that we have to anoint a king. The second stage is that we have to get rid of a Malik. And the third stage is Binyan base of Ephira, we have to rebuild the base of Mikdash. He says it has to be done in that order, but I've, I've made the argument that in some ways we're experiencing all three of these phases happening simultaneously today. For the first time in 2,000 years, we have Jewish sovereignty over the land which in some ways is a malucha, is a kingship. We don't have actually a king, but we, we have sovereignty over our land. A malik is a little bit complicated because we don't know who this nation is called a malik. But the Vilna Gon, if I can refer to him again, says an amazing insight. And he says that when you build Yerushalayim, you're actually weakening a malik. With this incredible insight, we can understand why it is that the United Nations can stand by idly as millions of people are slaughtered around the globe and they don't say a word. If I try to build an extension onto my porch, all of a sudden there'll be an emergency session of the Security Council to condemn us and all of a sudden they wake up because at least subconsciously they realize what is actually happening, that this is actually weakening them. And the third stage, as I've already explained, the vision base of the Thera, we're well on our way to rebuilding the base of Mikdash. By the way, it is one of the Targaryen mitzvahs, Sudanikdash, to rebuild the base of Mikdash. We learn it out from from Dabra Melech. Dabra Melech moved his capital from Hebron to Yerushalayim. And when he moved his capital, he was told by Nebua from Nasan Hanavi that he would not be the one, there are many who are familiar with this, this teaching, he will not be the one that's going to build the base of Mikdash. His hands were, were bloodied. And they said Mikdash is a house of peace, so he wouldn't be the one that would be building it. It would be his son Shlomo Melech that would build it. And at that point, Dabra Melech could have said, you know what, I'm a busy guy. I have lots of things going on. I already know from God that I'm not going to be building the Mikdash, and I'll put that aside, and I'll take care of the other things. That's not what he did. We know that he continued to do whatever was in his power to build the of Mikdash. He built the uh, flooring of the of Mikdash, according to some. He, he organized the Mishmaros. He did whatever was in his power to, to, to start the process. And I, we, we learn this as a lesson today, that 
what even though we're not we may or may not be able to build the base of Mikdash today, we're have to do whatever is in our power to do that. There are many, many, many people doing that today. Just for one example, we purchase sheep uh, before every Pesach and we get ready for the Karma Pesach. There's nothing stopping us from bringing a Karma Pesach today, today meaning here Pesach. Um, with the exception of having access to the Malcolm is back, we don't need to have a base of Mikdash. We can do a Bituma because Rabbi so is Tame. Um, Again, it's a long, longer discussion exactly what this means, but you, we can bring the carbon best up today. In fact, it's one of the two mitzvahs that say your high curries for not doing it. It's a very serious transgression if you don't do it. Brismila and and carbon best up the only, only positive commandments that your high curries for not doing. So living next to the Temple Mount, we take this very very seriously, and we have sheep prepared. We, we're not makdish them, but we have them prepared. We have them checked out from a, an expert the week before Pesach to make sure they don't have any blemishes. And we have a Chabura, some of which the Chabura actually live in Yerushalayim, the Kodesh, so the original city of Yerushalayim where you can eat the current Pesach. And we have it ready and for the, the day that uh, Bibi Netanyahu, who by the way is a Levi, so he has extra responsibilities in the base of Mikdash, uh, for him to give us permission to have access to the Mokom of his bath. We already have him his bath prepared. All we need to do is have access to the place. By the way, the Graal also says that once we start bringing carbonas, the rest of it's going to happen automatically. So that's that's something that we strive for. We actually have to this this pace up is the first pace up that we have a, a special conference of uh, rabbis across Israel that are getting together to discuss uh, the rebuilding, the sorry, the the, the reinstitution of carbonas. It's something that uh, was discussed even by Rav uh, Rav People don't know if anybody here is familiar with Rav Tukhachinsky. Tikachinsky was the one who wrote the Luach, the, the, the famous calendar that they use all over Eretz Israel. I don't know if they use it here in America or not, but in Eretz Israel it is the calendar. He also wrote uh, Geshur Achayim about, about morning. And uh, he wrote a, a set of books called Ir HaKodesh Vahamikdosh. Now, just to understand who, who Ruf Tikachinsky was, Ruf Tikachinsky was not this uh, modern day Zionist with a Kippah Ruga. He was a, a Hasidish. Uh, Non-Zionist Rabbi Meisha Arim, and he wrote this three set, this three-volume set before he died in the 50s. So he would die before 1967, before we liberated uh, the Temple Mount. But he already foresaw that soon, and he writes in his book that soon we're going to have access to the, the Temple Mount again. We need to start preparing. We need to start preparing, understanding the midos and where the dimensions of the, of the Harabayas and the base of Mikdash. We need to start preparing for the Karbanas. We, we, we unfortunately. Have been 50 years. 50 years we've been in in Yerushalayim, and we have not moved. I always tell people that we've, excuse the pun, hit a wall. <laughs> we, we all, the, the paratroopers that actually liberated Yerushalayim, the, the, the Temple Mount, and this is uh, actually in the memoirs of the commander of Matukur, the general that led the troops and the paratroopers into the old city and into the Temple Mount. They got to the place uh, on Harabayas of the, of the Kodesh Agadoshim, the Holy of Holies, and they asked, where is the Kotel? And he was amazed. He wasn't a religious Jew, but he was amazed. He couldn't believe. People, the, even those soldiers were totally uneducated. Unfortunately, for 2,000 years, all we had access to was this retaining wall, and they didn't realize that where they were standing was much more significant than this wall. Many people mistakenly, and this is one of the myths that I try to dispel in my tours when I take tours around the line, Many Americans mistakenly believe that the Kosovo is the holiest place for the, for the Jewish people. That's clearly not the case. 
the Mishnah and Kalim says Esther Kedusha, ten, there's ten different levels of Kedusha in the world. The lowest level of Kedusha is Eretz Yisrael. Sorry again, that Atlanta doesn't make it on the list. After Eretz Yisrael comes walled cities in Eretz Yisrael, and then Yerushalayim. It skips the Gosel, we'll see why in a second, then it goes to the next level, which is Harabayas, and then it continues up and up and up until it gets to the highest level, which is the Malkum, the Kodesh, the Kodesh. So to understand what that is, you really have to see it from the perspective of Harabayas and where I live. You can see the whole the whole Harabayas and the whole uh, where everything is, to understand where, where everything uh, is and belongs. Needless to say, the place of the, 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 the peak of the mountain, which is known as Harabayas, is where the Golden Dome is today. It's not a mosque, as many people mistakenly believe. It's not shaped as a mosque. It's not in the direction of a mosque. It's not used as a mosque. It is a, a, a structure that was built over the Eben Ashesiyah, the foundation stone, which is where the world was created from. We read a few parashiyos ago. The world was created from this place. Adam Arishon was created from the Adama that was taken from this place. Kain and Hevel is two children fight, one killing the other over bringing Karbonos in this place. Noah's Teva lands on Har Arat, and he comes here to bring Karbonos, according to the Medrash. Avram Avinu is standing on the mountain, coming from Beersheba. For those that have been to the Tayelet, to the Pramanad, and the Ramon and Tziv, that's, that's the area he was standing. The Yaris and Malcom Rafok, the first time he sees, he's able to see Har Moriah, he leaves Eliezer and Yishmael behind, and he comes to do the Kedis Yitzhak there. Yaakov Avinu falls asleep there, he's a ladder with Malachim going up and down the ladder. The first and second of the Mikdash were there, the third soon to be there, and this is the center of the world, but it's also the peak of a mountain. So how do you make a place for a Mikdash to have an abode out of a peak of a mountain? You need to have a flat surface. So you can either cut the peak of the mountain in half, or you can build something around the peak of the mountain. They chose plan B, and they built a huge man-made platform around the peak of the mountain, which is called Harabayas, the Temple Mount. It's being held up by 50 subterraneous caverns. There's huge arches under the ground that are holding this up. And in order to hold it up from the sides, you need to have retaining walls. One of those retaining walls is in the west, and it's known as the Western Wall. That's what the coastline of Arabi is. It's, it's not the last remnant of the base of Mikdash, not remnant of all the base of Mikdash. It's an Herodian retaining wall. It's something that was a little bit, some, some rabbis had trouble with or didn't understand. They, they weren't fortunate enough to be able to witness what we're able to witness today in Jerusalem. They didn't understand what we understand today. Um, I'm talking about rabbis in Europe. They wrote shuvas thinking that this was a wall of the base of Mikdash. Basically, no one accepts that today. Anybody who goes to the Kotel Plaza clearly doesn't accept that because if you go to the Kotel Plaza and you're not taking off your shoes and going to the mikvah first, then clearly this is not a wall of Mikdash because then everything behind it would be higher bias. And uh, like I said, most people, 99.99% of Orthodox Jewry doesn't accept that. So we understand this is one of the retaining walls, not the last retaining wall. We have a southern retaining wall which includes Sha'arei Chuga, right? Each entrance of the Harabayas has has one entrance that leads into it, except for the south, which has two entrances called Shari Fulda. Fulda was one of the seven Nebios. She would give her Nebuah as millions of Jews would be going up through the Olu Regal through these gates. And uh, and we also have a, so we have a, a western wall, we have a, a southern wall. Anybody goes on tours, it's been through all this before. And then uh, we have a beautiful view of the eastern wall, which is in some ways more impressive than the western side, and actually has stones dating back from Bayes Mishon. On the, on the western side, you just have Herodian stones from planted by Shani. But I don't even know how I can digress to this, uh, this lecture <laughs> in archaeology. So I want to open it up for questions. I, I do have uh, pamphlets over here to discuss uh, the structure that we're building. We did, I'm making this the appeal that uh, anybody who can't help 
um, not only is helping to build just any shul, by the way, it's called, the website is jerusalemshul.org, but it's also a very special shul, and it also includes that extra feature which I mentioned earlier, which is the rebuilding of Yerushalayim, you're, you're contributing and weakening Amalek, you really want to fight the if you really want to fight uh, the UN, now that Nikki Haley is not going to be around, this is a good way to do it. And uh, you're welcome to take materials and or my card. Please, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to answer them on any any subject. Already fooled, Eretz Yisrael, uh, my neighborhood, the Chul, life in general, yes. So, something you said earlier that, you know, people are embarrassed or ashamed to speak out, and I, I'm going to, first of all, thank you for coming and speaking. But so, you know, I, I totally disagree. I don't think people are informed enough. And thank God I had a crazy life experience in the last two months, but I had the most incredible fortunate events through Rabbi Tenler to meet Rabbi Packer. And where are the Rabbi Packers? I, unfortunately, we have lost a great man of Ari Fools who was supposed to be coming around the world and speaking around the world, or, you know, the U.S. I don't think it that we're ashamed. I just don't think we're informed to be able to retaliate um, with words. And so... I don't want to put blame, but where's the rabbit packer? Like I love rabbit, like rabbit packer's amazing, and and, packer's still there. and I know, no, I just, yeah, I just saw him. I mean, I'm just saying, like, where not him, so because he's he's incredible in what he's doing, but like, where are the the youth coming to America and really speaking to inform us? Like, I, I know for myself, like I am loud and I do have a voice, but I get scared because I don't have enough information because there is also so much information. That what am, what should we be focusing on? So you know, I know with Ari, like it, like it was very concise and very to the point, and had you know the knowledge and 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 I mean also his presence himself was just you know beyond amazing. But what happens? I mean, BDS is gonna win because we're we're not out, we're not speaking and we're not informed. And so great question. Yeah. So um, the week after Ari's murder. Uh, a bunch of his friends got together and we had a meal in the Beit Daniel across from the front. We were discussing what do we do from, the, from, from here on? Uh, how do we continue? Ari's, like I said before, his shoes are huge and nobody can really feel the shoes. But everybody that was at this table, I would say there was about uh, 10 of us, every one of us had a huge, relatively huge, social media um, following. We have tens of thousands of followers, and we thought, we, we just put our heads together to figure out what, how can we best utilize this in order to educate people like what you're suggesting. And we came to the conclusion that we're gonna start having uh, round table discussions, and each one of us is going to be live streaming this at the same time. Like, like I said, each one of us had thousands of followers, and together we're going to reach a lot of people. The, the first one happened while I was here, a couple days ago. Um, it was held in, uh, those that know Ari Abramowitz, it was held in his farm in uh, Samaria, and uh, I believe there was, and this was not advertised at all, I think there were, at the time, at the actually at live, there were 20,000 people watching this uh, at the time, and this was without any advertising. Uh, the next one is going to be in uh, Hebron, on Parshish Chayasara, and uh, we hope to have more than 20,000. And then the third one is going to be in our my house. We're looking at Temple Mountain. It's going to be a discussion about Harabites. 
by the way, um, I am a volunteer. My wife and I are both volunteers for Ihura uh, Sala, United Sala, and and Mada, and I'm the head of a special organization, a special unit of an organization called Zaka, and I'm in charge of higher bias for that, that uh, organization. So we're going to be discussing higher bias, and um, I believe we can reach hundreds of thousands of people, probably more than than you can imagine if we be properly advertised. So, so that's what we've decided to do to start getting this discussion moving. Of course, all of us are going to be making uh, more frequent trips here. Um, we hope we don't have to. We hope that uh, after my, my talk, everybody's going to get up and, and start planning. Contact Nefesh Benefesh tomorrow. But um, actually, I, I was very, very, if my whole trip was worth it because when I was in Florida last Shabbos, um, a couple people came up to me after, I, I spoke to them Friday night at an own in Shabbos in Boynton Beach. And then I spoke to them on Shabbos morning in Shul. They had me speak to them again by Shal Shudas, and then afterwards, after Shabbos again. So they, they, they were, yeah. by the time Shabbos is over, at least, at least three people came over to me and said they're getting their passports this week, and, and they're, I don't know if they're moving, but they're at least uh, going to visit her and stuff. So it was worth it just to get some. And there was also a girl that I met in the university here that also was debating what to do, whether to move to Australia or after her, or she graduates. And uh, I'm pretty sure she's going to be there as well. So, you know, it, it just takes, you never know what your words, who it affects. And, uh, and you're absolutely right that there's, there's a lack of knowledge out there. In fact, I, I witnessed this personally through this trip. I was a little bit surprised, especially in places like Durham, where you had a bunch of evangelical pastors. Like, what do I have to say to an evangelical pastor? Um, but it's really, we really see the Nebuah the coming true. That people are not going to be hungry, hunger for, for bread or thirsty for water. But they're going to be third, they're going to be wanting to hear the, the word of Hashem, and when people start to speak truth, it's it's amazing. I'm not like a great orator, but when people hear my words, they, they understand that I'm speaking true words, and they're attracted to that. And that that goes not only for me, but for everybody else that's able to learn some basic skills and, and basic knowledge, and to spread that word. You have a voice, and you're not ashamed. That much better, and you can really you really have a, a job that you know cut out for you. But uh, I think it's it's a double problem. There's some people that are ashamed, and there are other people that are that are uh, not knowledgeable. And uh, we need to work on both those. Thank you for your question. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Well, thank you for your presentation. And it's certainly a credit to Ari's memory, so we appreciate that very much. Um, I'm curious, given the, uh, the context in which you put many of these facts, how you have interpreted or understood the whole. Evangelical, uh, Christian evangelical movement and support. Uh, what does that play in terms of, uh, let's call it, for lack of a better word, your, your biblical assessment of development? We understand that that's the base of Mikdash, not just for the Jewish people. Um, we read in Aleinu after every davening, everybody is going to understand the, the revelation of God. Uh, at the end of days, and, and it's something that we're going to redeem not just the Jewish people, but the entire world. <laughs> so I, that's not my thing. I don't usually speak to, to Christians, but obviously they have a part to play. And uh, and I think at least the ones that I've met have an incredible realization. <laughs> to be honest with you, I wouldn't say this to them, but uh, it's a little bit embarrassing 
for as growing up and learning in yeshivas, it's a little bit embarrassing to speak to these people because they know the Tanakh so much better than we do. And um, we have a lot of catching up to do. But um, suffice it to say that, that they are definitely part of the, the, the plan. And uh, I believe that, uh, you know, obviously they got some something wrong along the way, but, uh, but they're, they're definitely, what you know, most of the tourists in, in America, in, in Israel today, are Christian tourists. Mm -hmm. The top of my mountain is the third most popular tourist attraction in, in Yerushalayim after the Kotel and Yad Vashem. And 99% of them are, are Christian pilgrims that start their tours there, work their way down the mountain. They have their own theology of what happened over there. Um, they actually have, they stop in one of their, welcome of the Zara right there in the middle of the, of the, of the mountain. Which, by the way, when I give tours, if anybody's been on my tour, they would, they, I go to this place. It's not unusual, by the way, for mosques and churches to be placed on Jewish holy sites, and this was no exception. Um, this place called Dominus Flevit, which is claimed by the Vatican Church, is actually the Makam of the Shrevis Karaduma. We know from the Shnais and Kara that the Karaduma was burnt on Harzaisim. The Mishnah refers to it as Har Mishka. It was directly across from the Makam Mikdash. There was a bridge that went over from Harzaisim to the Makam Mikdash. And it's a, it's a plug for my tour. Anybody who comes to my tour will understand exactly why you're sure that that is the place. But, um, but the Christians definitely have a role. I don't know who might have said what their role is, but uh, they definitely have a role. I don't know if I answered your question. I think that the, it, could, it could lead to very positive things. I, I don't know how, how it's going to play out, but uh, clearly there, there are some that are that are on our team and others that are not. And uh, much of the Christian and Muslim world is not on our team. But uh, it seem, it's seemingly, and I'm sure that they, they I, should, I, should say that. I, I, I don't know whether they have ulterior motives or not. But regardless, they, they seem to be doing a lot of, a lot of uh, positive things. I was actually, I was wondering if you've heard of the a number of times, is there anything that you know from the time of Grub that relates to this question or anything else? I would have to think about that. Um, we, I consider myself one of the Tell Me Dan Grub. I mean, we, we, we have a community today in the old city and around the old city of Tell Me Dan Grub. Um, there are hundreds of Jews that were to fill in all day as per the instructions of the Grub. The mitzvah wearing to fill in is, is not just in the morning for Shachris, it's, it's the entire day. And they they wear they wear it from before bar mitzvah from already from Yil so from nine years old they're walking around with tefillin all day. Um, of course, we, anybody who's been to Yerushalayim knows that we dofin every day in Yerushalayim. That wasn't the case in the Galil where where the, the Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov um, basically took over that area. They, they don't do that there, but uh, it's fact I don't think they they dofin every day, but by us we dofin every day. And there was these are many things that they grew up felt were, that uh, were lost during our many, many years of exile, and we wanted to bring back uh, to the mainstream. So today, we have Bar Hashem. We have, uh, I'll, I'll get, tell you an interesting story that's not answering your question, but I just like to tell you interesting stories. Um, the Chor uh anybody who's been to the Chor Vashul, it used to be a big, a big arch in the old city, and today it's a Bar Hashem rebuilt structure, beautiful shul in the old city. It was built in the year 1700 by a rabbi named Rabbi Yehuda Klausid. He came at a time when there, were only a, there was a Sephardic community in Yerushalayim, but he, was the, he brought the first Ashkenazim in many years, 
previously had from Banning went there many centuries before, and he found there was hardly a minion in Yerushalayim, he had to move to Hebron. He brought his community of Ashkenazim to Yerushalayim, and he borrowed money from the local Arab population in order to build the shul, which was known as the shul of the Beit Knesset of Yehuda Kossel. He was also the only one that was able to repay these loans. And he suddenly died afterwards, and they defaulted on all the loans. And as a result, the Arab population rose up, and they destroyed the shul for the first time. It was hence known as the Khurra shul. It was rebuilt and then destroyed again by the Jordanians in 1948, and then rebuilt again last decade. They, they destroyed the shul and they banned Ashkenazi Jews from living in Yerushalayim. So for about a century, from 1700 until the early 1800s, until the Talmud Ebrah came back to Yerushalayim, there was there were basically no Ashkenazim allowed to be in Yerushalayim. Now, there, were, there, was, there were a number of Ashkenazim that still wanted to live in Yerushalayim, and they decided to disguise themselves as as uh, Sephardim in order to live there. Right? The Arabs didn't know the difference in the Nusra Latvila or the way they spoke, they just saw the way they dressed. So they wore old Turkish garb, what the Sephardim were wearing, in order to disguise themselves as Sephardim. Today, and many of them don't even know it, but if you go to Me'a and you see what the people, they call themselves Yushalmim, and they wear these striped coats, those coats are old Turkish garb, because their ancestors were these Ashkenazi Jews that were disguising themselves as Sephardim in order to blend in during that period of time. And it was only many years later, like I said, in the early 1800s, that the Talmud they grew up, that a lot of mysterious Nefesh came back to Yerushalayim under the, under the leadership of uh, and they came back to Yerushalayim and they settled Yerushalayim. It's interesting because I was just at this, I told you I spent to this, spoke at this Rachel Menu event, so Rabbi uh, Eisenman from Passaic was being honored, and he's a direct descendant of a rabbi named Shlomo Zalman Tzoret was his name. And he was one of the Talmudic Kral. And he was one of the first ones that came back to Yerushalayim. And he was murdered by Arabs in the old city of Yerushalayim. As he was coming back from Shul, he was stabbed in the back. And the, the, the state of Israel recognizes him as the first victim of terror. There's a list of the state of Israel of over 3,000 victims of terror. And he was the first one in the 1830s or 40s, I don't remember what year it was, he was killed by Arabs, and he was recognized as the first victim of terror. Um, again, I don't know if I answered your question. But I got to tell a nice story. It's interesting. Thank you. Informative, useful. Thank you. Any other questions? I'm really not even listening to your questions. You didn't tell a story about whatever. Please, <laughs> <laughs> There's a group called Stand With, Stand with Me. Yes. Do you see that in Israel, that most in the United States and other countries? Are you familiar with the group? Yeah, Stand With Us. Yeah, Stand With Us. So, um, are they a Jewish organization? Are they primarily Jewish? Are they mixed persons? As far as I know, they're a Jewish organization. They have non-Jews that speak for them. They have a speaker bureau that has non-Jews in them. One of them is a good friend of mine, Muhammad, who's a a Muslim from Umm al-Fatham. Very, very big Zionist. And he's now serving in the military, in the IDF. I don't know how many of you know about military service in Israel, but I'll just give you a very brief, because I, I, again, I know your question, it's not my stories. So um, the IDF, basically, everybody in, in Israel is drafted into the army from age 18. It is the only army in the world that drafts women to its ranks uh, in peacetime. And uh, you stay into the army either three years or, or um, two years, depending on men or women. If you're in a program like Ari and I were in, it's called Hezder, 
It's a program, a five-year program generally, that mixes yeshiva study with, with army service. You go here in yeshiva, you're in the army, you're in yeshiva, you're in the army, you're in yeshiva. And um, so basically, uh, Ari didn't, Ari wasn't, but I, I was a lone soldier. A lone soldier means somebody who comes from, from abroad, and generally, and, and they don't have any family, so they get special status called a lone soldier. They get special, uh, they get double the pay, they get special stipend for rent, they get all sorts of different benefits. And um, what's interesting, which you probably, probably don't know, is that there are certain populations which, if their children go to the army, they are shunned by their, by their families and their, and their communities. For example, in the Haredi community, even if somebody comes from Be'ashar and joins the army, they generally are not welcome back in their homes. And likewise, if a Muslim decides to volunteer for the army, they also are given this special status of lone soldier status because they can't go back to their homes, they'll be killed, so they, they, they are considered lone soldiers. So again, I, that probably has nothing to do with your question, but I thought it was an interesting fact. Anyway. Druze. No, I'm not talking about Druze. Druze and Bedouin have always been armed. But there are, and those that are naturally going because Druze have a a, a tradition of loyalty to whatever country they're in, but uh, I'm talking about Muslims, right? Yeah, right. Muhammad is actually a Muslim, and um, it's interesting. I, was, I did a video with him last year. Um, it was one of these Israel advocacy videos that we were doing, and we we're trying to show that Israel is an apartheid state. Um, I actually believe it is in some ways, unfortunately. And one of those, one of the ways you see that, well, there's two ways that you can primarily see that. One is that if you go through anywhere in Yehuda and Shomron, and you see these big red signs that say no Jews allowed, so clearly that there, there's discrimination going on over there. And the other one is the Temple Mounts, where unfortunately in our holiest site, Jews are restricted from going and praying. So Yahya Muhammad from Umar was in the army yet, and myself, Jew, and another Israel advocate uh, in Canada, who's known as Ryan Belrose. He's a native Canadian Christian, I believe. He's Christian? Not sure. Not Jewish, not Muslim. Uh, we all went basically on a stroll. I took him on a tour of the old city. And then we walked up to the Temple Mount, or to the gates of the Temple Mount, I should say. And all of a sudden, Yahya is welcomed in. And we're videoing this. Right? He's welcomed in. And then they stop us. They're like, Jew, Christian? No, you guys are not allowed. But, but he's, he's welcome to us. Unfortunately, um, it's interesting, we were mentioning earlier that, uh, I don't know if you're, anybody's up with current events in Israel, but uh, we had a peace treaty that was signed with Jordan 20, uh, 24 years ago. And when it was signed, there was two areas in the middle between Jordan and Israel that were leased to Israel um, for agricultural purposes. <clears throat> One of them was called Naharayim. You maybe have heard of it because there were seven um, Jewish uh, schoolgirls that were murdered there. Um, from Beit Shemesh a number of years ago by a, a Jordanian soldier. But these, basically in the, in the treaty it says that, that they're leasing it to Israel for a period of 25 years. And if, we, if, they, if Jordan chooses, they can, a year before, they can give notice and then they can, they, they can basically ask for their properties back. So that's what they did this year. It was just the 24th anniversary. And they, they officially said to Israel that we want our, our land back. And, uh, and next year, it's supposed to go back to, to Jordan. That having been said, member um, of Glick and others, like myself, have been saying, if that's the case and they want to have their, quote, land back, that we should be insisting on our land back, because there are Jordanians that are on the Temple Mount today. 
They're called the Waq, the Muslim, it's translated as a Muslim trust, they're called the Muslim mistrust. Um, but either way, they're on our, our, our holiest site, and we should definitely immediately get up and tell Jordan that if they want their land back, that's fine. We want our land back, and we, we take, take your, your people off our, our holy sites and uh, let us have it. But uh, we're not in charge, so that's probably not going to happen. But uh, it's a nice spot, I guess. Next question. Yes, sir. How long are you living in Israel, and how did you decide to make that move? So I, I didn't speak about my uh, background, right? So I, I basically, I grew up in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. And I, I lived there for 12 years. And then when I was 12, I went away to Yeshiva in Baltimore, near Israel. And after, after high school, I moved to Israel when I was 17 to go to Yeshiva. I went to Yeshiva there. Didn't plan on staying, but I fell in love with the place at first sight. There's a, uh, since you asked my question, I'll give you a story that's a little bit related here. Um, in my mind, it's related. ADHD and everything's related. So there is a, uh, on Harazesa, we have an interesting person there. We have 150,000 people with 150,000 stories, and many of them are well known, some of them are less well known. Um, we have many of the famous rabbis from the last generation, including uh, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, Rabbi Shmuel Salat, Rabbi Shulay Diskin, Chaim Berlin, uh, Deres, Rabbi Cook, Rabbi Yosef is there, Rabbi Scheinberg, Rabbi Hutner, the Alter Slavavka, Rabbi Yosef Leshem, the names go on and on. And one of the people who was buried there is not so well known, but his name was Warder Crescent. Warder Crescent, you can look him up afterwards, was a Quaker from Philadelphia. And he was appointed as the first US consul to Jerusalem. He was sent to Jerusalem in 18, Wikipedia would know this, I think it's 1844. 1844, he was sent to Jerusalem as the US consul, the first US consul. Um, he came to Jerusalem, he immediately fell in love with the people in the place, and he decided that he's gonna convert to Judaism, and he's gonna to bring his money over from the United States in order to rebuild the temple. His wife and his uh, children in Philadelphia were not so enamored by this idea, and they had him. They ran the court and had him declared insane, um, so that he wouldn't be able to remove his assets from from the states. He subsequently went back to America. He appealed this in a higher court, which actually made legal precedent by declaring that just because someone changes their faith does not mean that they're insane. And he was able to come back to to Jerusalem. He indeed converted to Judaism. He changed his name to Michal Boaz. He remarried. Unfortunately, he had three children that, that passed away young, but he's buried in the old Sephardic section of Harazetzin. One of the many interesting stories. Anyway, so so I similarly came to Israel and I immediately fell in love with the place. Um, I spent a number of years in yeshiva there, and then I went to um, I was in Haredi yeshiva, so I went to, in base Israel for a number of years, and I learned in the mirror. And then I was the Mir's Hesley representative. The Mir, I was, I think, the only person who ever did that. But um, while I was in the Mir, I decided that I, for whatever reasons, I decided I wanted to go to the army. I wanted to go with a religious unit. Uh, so I was living in the old city, and I approached um, the, the former Russian Shiva, Zetzal, of the Shiva the Kotel, and I said that I want to join the army. Uh, I want to join it with Hesder, so he agreed that he would allow me to do it through his yeshiva program, and I joined his Hesder program. When I got to um, 
the whole idea of PES there, by the way, is that you're, I mentioned it before, it's a five-year program. The whole idea is that when you do the Army, you're with the same guys that you're in yeshiva with. You're studying with them in one year, and then you're in the Army with them, and then you're studying with them, and you're, it's a very close-knit community, and you're always with religious people. My, my, uh, my year was something strange happened. Strange things often happen to me. And um, for some reason, right after our basic training that was with all the <laughs> religious boys, I was, um, we were sent to different intelligence uh, courses, and then we were all broken up into different places. And I was sent to Lebanon. I spent a year as a liaison between the Southern Lebanese Army and the IDF. Uh, that's when we had a, a buffer zone in Lebanon. And uh, I was the only religious person on the base. It's all the story itself and how I, how I managed. I didn't need kosher food. I mean, didn't eat, uh, didn't eat the food, the army food, because usually in, in, in the army in Israel, you have the army rabbinate that checks all the kitchens to make sure the whole food's kosher. In Lebanon, they were actually ordering food from the Arabs out, and it was definitely not kosher. So I was eating uh, combat rations for a year. It was, it was an interesting time. Anyways, I finished the army. I met my wife who is a uh, Yemenite girl from, uh, from Rehova. Sorry, woman from Rehova. <laughs> um, and uh, we got married, we had three children. At the time I was working in the Knesset for um, formal, the former uh, Minister of Tourism, Rehova Anzaevi, Hashem Yikom, the mother was assassinated. And um, we got married, I had three children. And I started working for the Jerusalem Post. I was the online editor for the Jerusalem Post for a number of years. We went on vacation to America. And uh, I think we're here for a month, a few weeks. And we had a flight leaving from JFK back to Israel on 9-11. So clearly we didn't make it. We were on the way from Pittsburgh to, to the airport in, in New York. And that as, as we were traveling by, the, the plane came down in Shanksville. And I was immediately put on assignment uh, from the Jerusalem Post to the to Ground Zero. I spent the week in Ground Zero over there, and it took about two weeks before we got out. Um, we came back to Israel, and at that point, we decided that I was going to come back to America and finish my uh, studies here. Like I said, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, I did my master's. Uh, we had three other children in America. It's a little bit ironic. I was mentioning to some people earlier that my three older children that were born in Israel grew up in Pittsburgh, so they really don't speak good Hebrew. And my three younger children that were born in America, they came to Israel within six months. They were totally Israeli, fluent in Hebrew. The lesson is that you should bring your kids when they're young. Makes it much, much easier. But fortunately, today there is, uh, there are options for only just for those people that are interested. Um, there's an English language high school, which uh, my children went to in Jerusalem, which makes it much, much easier for kids that, especially teenagers, that are going through all sorts of things anyways. And plus, they have the language barrier, and they have to do, in Israel, we have what's called Bagriot. I don't know if you have like a region system here, where you have to go through matriculation tests. So it's, it's a difficult time, so it makes it much easier that they can go through an English language high school. At the time, I'm totally off. I have no idea what your question was. I'm, I'm also still jet-lagged, so it's fine. Yeah, so how did I want to, so that we went, I, I ran for mayor. And fortunately, I lost. There hasn't been a Republican mayor in 100 years in Pittsburgh. I wasn't planning on winning anyways. But uh, fortunately, I lost, and I, and I was able to come back home. So that's where my, my children um, my children grew up basically in Pittsburgh. And they they heard, like every other Orthodox Jew, you know, yeah, we're going to move to Israel when Mashiach comes. 
So they thought when we kept saying we're moving back to Israel, moving back to Israel, they thought, you know, like everybody else, we're moving back to Israel. And all of a sudden we sold our house and we get on a plane and they're like, they're, they're, they're like, wow, we're actually doing this? This is actually happening? I thought you were just joking all these years that you're saying back, we're going back to Israel. But we went back and uh, I mentioned to someone before that my oldest daughter was very depressed that she had to leave all her friends behind in America. And I told her, I said, Hannah, by the way, my oldest son now is in, uh, in the army, he's in combat intelligence in Gaza, and my oldest daughter, the one I'm talking about now, is in Shirulumi doing national service with the OU's uh, Yaha program for special needs kids. So I told her, I said, Hannah, there's no other place like this in the world. There's no other place in the world where everyone's gonna show up in your backyard. So she said, what does that mean? I said, I said everybody's gonna show up in your backyard. Every head of state, every prime minister, every, every president, every movie star, every singer, everybody you've ever met in camp, everybody you've ever met in school, everybody at some point is gonna wind up in your backyard. So she laughed, she thought I was joking. And two months later, she runs up to me, she says, Abba, it's true, everybody winds up here. I said, I meet everybody here. There's really no other place like Yerushalayim where you can meet everybody. So, Baruch Hashem, they have, uh, it took some time, it's not easy. Aristotle's nickname is to be it's not easy to, to move, it's not supposed to be easy. But uh, Baruch Hashem, my kids are, or somewhat uh, acclimate themselves. Google says you're correct. 1844 is the president's title. Excellent. Does it also say Mashiach's here? It has to be correct. I'll have to work on that. There are more Haredi coming in than technical barriers of jobs. Are they not accepted back in their home? Um, I thought I read in Jerusalem Post there was like 50, 90. Sorry, I don't have some question. In the army? It depends on the family. There, there are many families that, that they're not welcome back. And that, that there, are, there are neighborhoods, unfortunately, that that is dangerous for a religious soldier to walk through. Like my, I told my son not to go to certain neighborhoods because I know he's going to be, they're going to they're gonna attack him if he goes through these neighborhoods. Um, what's, what's ironic about the whole story is because it, he wears a yamaka with his uniform, and that's why he's going to be attacked. If a soldier was not wearing a yamaka, he would not be attacked because if he's walking, if a soldier without a yamaka is walking through the arms, they look at him and he's a guy, and they don't think. But if somebody has wearing a yamaka, that, that's a complete contradiction to their whole worldview, and they can't handle seeing a, a, a religious soldier. That doesn't make sense to them. So, um, so those are the that changing? No. It's a very difficult question. I don't know the answer. Why would it change? They haven't changed now. Unfortunately, there, there are many people that, uh, like I said, the worst exile is the one you don't realize you're in. There are people that, that are living probably here in Atlanta that don't realize they're in exile, and there are people living in Mesh Arm that, that think they're still in, in the ghetto in New York, and they don't realize that they're not, look, they're not seeing what's going on around them. They're completely oblivious to what's going on around them. Whether that's going to change, I, I think it'll have to change at some point. I think it's going to be so obvious that some, at some point they're going to have to make a radical change in one direction or the other. We're either going to turn towards the nutcases from the Torah Karta and be completely uh, disassociated with the Jewish people, or they're going to be on board with uh, what's going on, I mean, the, the, the reality around them. That's what I hope for. I mean, I... Josh, it's so good seeing you again after all these years. I'm interested in who taught, who trained your kids what to do 